Hey, I'm Amory Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard. Episode 6 The technicians hustle me back to my room and put me in bed without letting me ask a single question. I'm so shocked by what I've seen, I can't think what to ask, and I know they'd never answer me anyway. Pepper gives me a pitying look as she reactivates the drone above my bed, then makes a show of tinkering with the settings until the other techs leave the room. I'm really sorry, she says quietly once we're alone. She gets me a cup of water and puts it into my hands, then folds her hands around my own to help me lift it to my lips once it's clear they're shaking far too much for me to manage on my own. I wish I could have told you, but we've been divided about what to do. Some argued for involving you as soon as possible, given your previous experience with this phenomenon. Others believed you shouldn't be distracted from your own healing. I I can see both sides, frankly. I shake my head, partially to clear it, but also partially in disbelief. Who gave him blue? I ask. Pepper looks confused, so I clarify. How did he get the drug that causes the stasis? Oh, uh, this wasn't caused by anything he ingested that we know of, Pepper says. More likely, it was the result of something he was exposed to in the explosion. It took effect about an hour after everyone came in. I gasp and look down at my own hands and arms in pure reflex, then gasp again in panic and whisper, Arden? He's all right, Pepper assures me. I mean, he was badly injured, so that's of concern, but he's not blue. And neither are Bennett, Darrow, Graham, or you. Polly was trying to open the crate when it exploded, so he got the most exposure to whatever was in it, and part of the crate pierced him in the explosion as well. Uh, You saw, you were the one who found him. Macha is confident that either something in the crate or the explosion itself or some residue on the crate piece that struck him led to what you just saw. So Polly is in stasis, like Carloa, I say. Pepper's eyebrows knit together as she considers this. I really don't know if it's the same, she finally replies. Macha will have to explain what's going on with him medically. She'll be here soon. I look down, contemplating my next visit from Macha. I can feel Pepper studying me. Her empathy, or is it pity, makes me supremely uncomfortable. After a few moments of silence, Pepper takes the cup from my hands and places it on the nightstand. I have to go, she says. Graham should be here shortly. They were meeting about Polly earlier, and I know his intention was to come by afterward and tell you about it. With that, she pats my hand and walks out of the room, leaving me with my shock, my questions, and my new nemesis, the Vitamate Health Drone 8000. On impulse, I swing my open hand at it, but it deftly lifts itself just out of my reach before saying in its imperious mechanical voice, Please lie down. If you require medical assistance, say, Help. If you would like to order a meal, say, Meal. Medical rounds will begin shortly. Fortunately, Graham arrives before I can formulate a plan to actually damage the drone. Could you please stay out of trouble for five minutes, he says, seating himself on the edge of the bed and taking my hand in his. He's trying to sound fond and teasing, but there's an overlay of tension in his voice. His face is drawn and troubled, and his shoulders slump in uncharacteristic dejection. His funk puts me into a funk as well, and I find myself suddenly agitated and petulant. Someone should have told me, I say. Someone would have, but we wanted to make sure you were strong enough to hear the news. That shouldn't matter. Someone should have told me as soon as I was awake. Graham exhales in a way that belies his total exhaustion, and there's a long pregnant silence. When he speaks, all lightness has left his voice, and his tone is flat, bordering on angry. This isn't about you, he says sharply. 
My mouth falls open in surprise, but he doesn't notice and continues. We have two people who were almost killed, one of whom is now entering a physical condition we have no idea how to reverse. We have others with major injuries that will limit their activity for quite some time. We've lost the use of a physical facility and part of its contents due to the enormous damage caused by a powerful explosion. And now the company is coming here to investigate because some of its assets, both material and human, have been destroyed or damaged. No one has had the time or the bandwidth to make addressing your curiosity a top priority. What are you even saying to me? I snap in response. This is not about curiosity, and you know that. Those people are part of my family. I have a responsibility to them that I can't begin to fulfill if I don't know whether they're alive or dead. Graham cuts me off. You just spent the last five days lying in bed not knowing where you were most of the time. You weren't in any condition to fulfill any responsibility to anyone, not even to yourself, and you knew they were alive because Macha told you that much. Now, because you couldn't possibly wait half an hour to find out what was going on, you blew off recommendations from medical professionals and people who care about you to insert yourself into a potentially dangerous situation that could have repercussions we can't even imagine yet. You broke a quarantine field. You disrupted care for others when all the medical technicians had to wrestle you back to your room. And now Matcha has to file a report and figure out what to tell the company about this stunt, which is fabulous because she only just figured out what to tell them about our little rescue mission. He's dropped my hand. His expression is one of complete exasperation. I can see the struggle on his face as he fights to choose his words carefully. When he speaks again, his voice is low and solemn and tightly restrained. What you did for Arden and Polly and Bennett was wonderful, he says. Truly a selfless act that was instinctive for you. And I think the company will see that, and it will mitigate any negative consequences as a result of those actions. But what you did out there in the hallway was stupid and irresponsible, and it puts us all under the company's lens. And you don't want that, Faith. Believe me, you don't want that. He stands and moves away from the bed. I want to ask him a thousand questions. I want to tell him I know far better than he does what it's like to be under the company's lens. I want to blurt out, why are we fighting? But I can't find any words to say at all. He takes my silence to be acquiescence. I have to wrap up my discharge with Matcha, he says. I'll try to come by later. You should rest. I don't think they're going to be letting you go home today after all. And with that, he leaves the room. I fling myself back against the pillows and screw my eyes shut in my own fit of pique, battling multiple emotions. I'm anguished and miserable about what's happened to Polly. I'm frustrated by my inability to do anything about it and by the idea of staying in clinical even one more second. I'm confused and upset by Graham's speech. And I'm sad about, well, about everything. Too much is happening that I don't understand. That was one of the things I loved about Iona compared to Homeworld. Its flexibility, its looseness with routine. I'm afraid my rough-and-tumble indie planet may be changing in a way that makes sense for it, but not for me. I rub my face and moan. What the hell is happening? I ask aloud. From the doorway, a voice says, Another day in the fabulous life of Faith Feathergrass? I open my eyes to see Arden, battered and weary-looking, but smiling at me all the same. As he comes toward me, I sit up and notice that he's in a hover chair rather than walking. He glides up to the bed, and we reach for each other's hands instinctively. He's also wearing clinical signature ugly green nighty. The admit chip on the back of his hand glows yellow. How are you? I ask, searching his face. He has a few bruises and scrapes that Matcha will have deemed too small for clinical intervention, and he's definitely weak, but any other injuries are not immediately obvious. 
I'm not too bad off, he says, squeezing my hands. His voice is thin and raspy. I have some throat issues that Matcha has me in treatment for, but it's getting better every day. I had some serious lacerations on my chest and lost a lot of blood, and something I was exposed to made me hurt like hell all over. I hear it was touch and go there for a little while, but I'm here. You're here, I echo, looking into his face. A sudden rush of emotion threatens to overtake me, and I look down for a moment. The chair, I ask, focusing on it instead of Arden's face. It's a precaution. I'm expected to make a full recovery, but I'm still weak and sometimes not breathing as well as I should be. But it's good that I'm breathing at all, and that's because of you. The tears make their way into my eyes despite my best efforts to blink them back. Not just me, I say, still looking down. Graham and Matcha and Winda and Darrow. You, Faith. They helped, to be sure, but no one else would have done this if you hadn't started it. Oh, oh I, I don't know about that. I do. It's what I would expect of you. And I know you better than anyone on Iona, no matter how close you might have become to anybody here. A parade of faces runs through my mind, the people here whom I love and consider family, with whom I've shared so many experiences over the last eight years, and I see again how I have kept them all at a distance in one way or another, with secrets and silence in my mysterious past. Arden is right. He's the only person on Iona who knows the deepest parts of me. But there's more to me now that he hasn't experienced, a woman he's only just now getting to know. For an instant, I feel profoundly alone. No one on this entire planet has a full understanding of who I am. But I hear Graham saying sternly, This isn't about you, and I push those thoughts to the back of my mind. Graham told me the company's coming, I say, shifting my gaze to Arden's face and gripping his hands hard. They are, but it's going to be all right, he responds, his voice soft and soothing. You don't need to be afraid. It's the first time I realize that I am. How do you know, I ask, when is it ever all right when they get involved? I understand why you would feel that way, Arden says in a measured cadence, but you have to believe me. There's nothing to worry about. You are going to be okay. His words echo back to me from my dreams and from our past. I examine his face for any sign that he's simply telling me what he thinks I want to hear or sugarcoating the truth in some way and find none. He lifts one hand to my face and strokes my cheek, tucking my hair back behind my ear in a gesture that is as old as our time together and still as comforting. I tilt my face into his hand and close my eyes, permitting myself to enjoy this moment of connection. The fullness of our past comes rushing back into my mind, but it doesn't spoil the moment. I open my eyes and look at him, finally seeing him clearly in this new landscape, in this new context. We have some catching up to do that we've been avoiding, I say, feeling strangely calm and grounded. Maybe that's something we should do before the company arrives. I'm surprised to see his face glow with pleasure as he says, I think that's a good idea. We're interrupted by Matcha, who comes into the room loudly tut-tutting, taking Arden to task for tiring himself out. He successfully makes a case in his own defense by showing her the readout from the monitors built into the chair, empirically proving that he's been careful. She approves, but shoes him out of my room anyway. I'll come back in a little while, he says from the door, and simply laughs when Matcha gives him her sternest look. I notice the sound of his laugh is thinner than normal, but still has its enchanting musical quality. As he glides away, Matcha smiles despite herself. Arden's charm has clearly worked on her as well. That man, she mutters, shaking her head, but her face is lit with amusement. She then turns her attention to me, and the stern expression reappears. Before she can speak, I interject. I am really, truly sorry, I say. I know what I did was stupid and impatient, and it caused all kinds of problems for you. I didn't mean to do that. I just didn't know, 
She holds up her hand and stops me in mid-apology, and I brace myself. But the censure I expect doesn't follow. Instead, her face softens, and she regards me with a sympathetic, if not understanding, expression. Don't apologize, she says. You couldn't imagine what you were walking into. I wish perhaps you'd been more trusting in our ability to judge what was best for you, but at the same time, I also wish I had not been quite so circumspect with information you had a right to have. It's no secret that you're not the most consistent rule follower on Iona, but this is probably why you have the friends you do. At this, a conspiratorial smile creeps across her face, and I understand she includes herself in this group. I smile gratefully in return. What now? I ask. Well, you were scheduled for a four-day isolation because you breached a quarantined area, but that's just our automatic protocol. I've already filed the administrative notes to downgrade it to two days of observational status. Clinical staff has been working hands-on with Polly from the instant he came in, and none of them have suffered any ill effects, and our experience with Carloa is further evidence that this is a non-contagious mechanism, Macha explains. But we are puzzled about how Polly was exposed when neither Arden nor Bened were, so that mystery forces us to be careful. I hear the company is coming for a little visit. A small frown twists Macha's lips briefly. Yes, we're coordinating it now, she says. Perhaps they can shed some light on this for us. How? Macha pauses for a moment as if considering putting me off again, but then thinks better of it. The crate that exploded was sent here by the company. Hopefully they will have further information to share. The company sent the crate that exploded? I echo, trying to still the tremor in my voice. I struggle to tamp down the flashing sirens in my brain, warning me of a repeat of my experience on Homeworld. What was inside? Well, no one seems to know. The security team was able to piece together enough of its data file to see that it appeared on our intake manifest quite some time ago, but there was no additional data on the sender or what might have been inside. The final explosion obliterated both the crate and its contents, and everything else in a 20-foot radius for that matter. I shudder, knowing how close we all were to being inside that radius when the blast occurred. Macho looks at me philosophically for a moment. You did a good thing, Faith, she says. You're going to get tired of hearing this, but you must rest. Try to at least get some sleep before Mr. Personality glides back in here and gets you wound up again. A faint cough echoes in the hallway, and Macho, looking toward the door, says in an elevated voice, Don't think I don't know you're out there just waiting for me to leave. Go to your room and get back in bed, or I'm taking that hover chair away. Abuse of power, I hear Arden complain, followed by more coughing and the whisper of the hover chair moving down the hall. I think I'll just set your status to do not disturb temporarily, she says, eyeing the doorway suspiciously. A few quick commands later, and a holographic barrier appears above the door. The admit chip in my hand also shifts color from blue to the same pale yellow hue as Arden's. Satisfied, Macha adjusts the drone settings and then pats me on the shoulder. I made the drone less invasive, but promise me you'll limit your movement. You should be able to sit up or walk to your sink or toilet without it going off, but if it senses you're out of bed for longer than a few minutes, it will make a most unpleasant scene. And I've had enough unpleasant scenes involving you for one day. Got it? Got it, I say, and lie back against the pillows, resigned to the inconvenience I managed to bring on myself. Macha leaves the room, and I stare up at the drone balefully. I'm determined now to be the best patient possible so I can get the hell out of here and back to something that at least might pass for normal on Iona but with two people in a mysterious irreversible stasis, a massive unexplained explosion, and an impending and always anxiety-inducing visit from the company hanging over our heads, I worry normal may be slipping away from Iona forever. Chapter 11 
The next two days are long and dull. My new status means no outside visitors, although Pepper procures a holo tablet for me so I can chat with Winda. I ping Fanny also to see how she's doing and to express my sympathy about what's happened to Polly. Her eyes are red from crying and she looks like she hasn't slept in days. She still seems to be in shock. I'm glad Tomas is with her to provide moral support. And I take a brief call from Graham, who is clearly distracted as he speaks with me. Our conversation is perfunctory and distant. It's obvious to me that he called because his conscience suggested he should and not because he really wanted to. He tells me he's been chosen pod leader in Polly's absence and is also helping coordinate the fast-approaching company visit, but offers no details. And although he apologizes for not coming back to see me after he was discharged, he does not mention the terse exchange we had the last time we were together, nor make any overtures regarding seeing each other again once I'm released from clinical. Macha also makes good on her threat and restricts Arden to his own room, so even that perspective diversion is removed, although he manages to send me a couple of encouraging messages through Pepper. So I read, I listen to music, I play with my food, I sleep, and I count the hours down almost literally one by one until Matcha finally comes into my room on the evening of the second day to let me know my penance is over and I can go back to my pod. I am at last discharged. Winda is waiting in the hallway and darts into my room the instant the Do Not Disturb hologram disappears from the doorway. Do you feel like walking back or should I get a scooter, she asks. In truth, I'm so excited to be free, I feel like I could fly to the pod under my own power, so I reassure her that a walk will be fine. But before we leave, I run down the hall to find Arden. He's sitting in his room, looking out the window at Iona's pale little moons creeping over the horizon. The look on his face is something not quite sadness, but a longing for something, an ache. I'm a little concerned about interrupting what might be a private moment, but he hears me at his doorway and looks around with a warm, delighted expression. You're being set free, he says, motioning me into the room. I look up quickly to verify he's able to have visitors. No colored barrier warns me away. I am, I confirm, stepping over the threshold. Winda is here to walk me home. Has Macha said when you'll join us again? She says soon. She wants to see a little more improvement in my airway, but things are apparently progressing nicely. I'm almost there. He stands and walks toward me steadily, his posture much more upright and stronger. I look into his face and notice his color is much better and his eyes have regained their light. No chair, I say. No chair, he repeats and opens his arms wide. Without hesitation, I step into them and we hold each other tight for a moment. I'll bring you home as soon as Macha says it's okay, I assure him, and then we'll have that talk. Excellent plan, he says, and we release and move apart. I rejoin Wenda in the hallway. When I turn for one final look over my shoulder, he's still watching me, his eyes dancing. He waves and calls to Wenda, don't let her overdo it. Wenda waves back with a reassuring smile. Ah, oh, I take it you two are getting along so well because of your shared convalescence? Wenda teases as we head for the exit. Oh, or maybe it's that dramatic saving his life thing. That can sure grab a guy's attention. Hush, I say. Arden and I have known each other for a very long time, and there's no point in pretending any differently. That's all there is to that, and I'm good with it. We've reached a new plateau. Wenda considers this with a sly smile on her face. Make sure you know where the edges of that plateau are, she says as we walk outside. We wouldn't want you falling. I shake my head and laugh. Don't worry, I tell her. You'll see. I look up at Iona's little moons and the bright stars overhead and breathe in the gritty air and scrunch the sand under my feet. And all I can think is how delighted I am to be out of that building and away from the constant scrutiny of drones, to be walking on my own and to be heading back to my pod and my pod mates and as much of my routine as I can scrape together. As heartbroken as I am about what has happened to Polly, I cannot contain my own relief and appreciation. I throw my arm around Wenda's shoulders in a companionable walking hug. She wraps her arm around me too, patting my ribs carefully. 
Did they feed you in there at all, she says. Arden looked thin, too. I wouldn't call it food, I say, and grimace. So many times I would have killed for one of your breakfast muffins. Well, we can get you fed, but it won't be my muffins, she laughs. Hen has taken over, and he's so good no one will eat my cooking anymore. But that's all right. I'm happy to pass the torch. What's next for you, then? Winda has always had many interests, but feeding our pod took up most of her time. I can tell by the expression on her face that she's excited to have new opportunities. Well, I'll keep the garden and still be around to help Hen learn things like managing food stores, but I'm a cultural historian at heart, she says. We may be reaching a time in Iona's history where we begin to morph into a place that people are from, rather than only a place people go. And I think it's important to pay attention to and document that shift in all of its contexts. I'm surprised. You think we're changing that dramatically? Well, think about it. When the Bardicellians arrived, our population doubled overnight. Some of that increase was in families that may not consider themselves complete. With so many more people, the likelihood of there being more couples producing children goes up as well. But it's not just about birth rate. Winda's looking up at the stars now, lost in her own vision. I don't want to just document changes. I want to help prepare for them, to guide them, she says. I want Iona to be somewhere people are proud to be from, and to figure out the factors going into that and to make it a reality. It sounds like a huge project, but, but I'll have time now. And I so want us to do this right. I want this for Iona. I want it for all of us. I look at my friend, and I feel her passion and love for this little scrap of a planet we call our home. And I know I've never experienced anything like this for Homeworld. The people who never leave Homeworld, like my parents, think they have the best of everything and that their lives are perfection. But those of us who do leave it understand how manufactured its society is, and some of us learn the hard way about company manipulation and subterfuge. I have a feeling there's more to be learned still. It's one more chink in the narrative that the company spins everywhere it goes. The last thing I expect when I walk into our pod common room is a welcome home party, but there it is, with balloons and music and brew and food. My pod mates excitedly cluster around me from oldest to youngest, hugging me and cheering my arrival. Fanny is here too, with Tomas in tow. Bennett has joined us as well and is showing off his new bioequivalent arm. And sitting by the fire wearing a contemplative expression is Graham, looking more like the Graham who stormed the damaged warehouse with me than the Graham I last saw in clinical. I catch his eye, and we manage a smile at each other before I'm enveloped in a tag-team bear hug by Hen and Holly. I baked you a cake, announces Hen proudly, gesturing toward an elaborate multi-layered concoction on the table that must have required a week's worth of sugar and egg stores to create. But it is a gorgeous thing, and it looks delicious. Wenda, reading my mind as usual, murmurs, can't be mad at that, and I chuckle as I gratefully accept a large slice of cake from Holly. It's not long before the dancing starts. Tables and chairs are pushed aside and couples begin spinning each other in our common room as Shar and her partner Venu play lively tunes on dulcimer and drum. Tomas is going out of his way to make Fanny smile, succeeding more often than not. Holly is cheerfully accepting dancing lessons from Bennett, while Hen explains the finer points of cake-making to Darrow. I'm about to comment on the scene to Wenda when Mabry glides up with a shy smile and asks her to dance. Wenda casts a quick, concerned look at me, but the delight on her face is clear and I shoo them out to the floor with a wave. In my estimation, that leaves exactly two people not dancing. Well, then. I turn expectantly toward the fireplace, and I'm surprised to see Graham is no longer there. But I barely have time to register his absence before I'm pulled into a five-way reel with Holly, Bennett, Hen, and Darrow. The rest of the evening goes by in a blur of music and laughter, and by the time the party comes to an end and I collapse into my hammock to sleep, I'm too exhausted to give any thought at all as to where or why he might have gone.
When the rising chimes sound in the morning, it takes me a moment to remember I'm finally at home in my own little hammock instead of on a stiff, hard bed in clinical. The light playing across my closed eyelids is, at last, sunlight rather than the scan of a health drone, and the welcome clink of cutlery and crockery replaces the mechanical whir of auto carts. And the smell, it's as if whatever hen is making is pulling me out of bed by my nose. I sit up and stretch, taking it all in. I am so very happy to be back. But on the heels of that good feeling, I can't help but think about Polly, so seriously injured and trapped in stasis. All comfort at my surroundings familiarity leaves me, and I contemplate the obvious. Things will be different now. Someone else will be barking orders over my headset. Someone else will be coordinating Iona's many moving parts. Who else can possibly do that job? Polly and Fanny have been here the better part of fifteen years, and Polly was already an old hen in his role by the time I arrived on this planet. I can't imagine how we'll fill those shoes. I can't imagine my Iona without him. I look over at my headset lying on my bedside table. I'm still on medical leave for the next few days with fairly specific restrictions on my activities, but I can still listen in to the chatter and maybe find out more about what I missed while I was laid up in clinical. So after I brush my hair and wash my face and pull on some clean clothing and pick up my headset and drop it on, tapping in before I walk out to our common room for breakfast. The first voice I hear is Macha's snarling. Faith Feathergrass, take that headset off immediately. You are not available for duty today. I just wanted to listen, I complain, but Matcha is unmoved. Log out or I'm readmitting you, she says. Your discharge specifies that you are to take it easy. If you can't make yourself adhere to that rule, I can. I sigh, very smart of her to threaten me with the one thing she knew I absolutely would not be willing to face. All right, all right, I mutter. Macha's threat has done its job. I fold up the little headset and put it away. The common room is buzzing with energy, despite the late night most of us had. Holly is running coffee to everyone, and Hen has just emerged from the kitchen carrying a platter loaded with amazing-looking muffins. My podmates start trying to grab them from the tray as he walks past, not even waiting for them to make it to the table. Hold on, hold on, Hen admonishes, pulling the muffins away from the tangle of reaching hands. Pod leader gets first choice. He grins at me as he presents the platter with a flourish, and my podmates, just now noticing I'm in the room, break out into cheers and applause. I can feel myself blushing, but I fight the urge to tuck my head and run and instead smile and select a muffin from Hen's tray. The first bite is an utter revelation. Wendo wasn't wrong. Hen is a natural at this. This is the best thing I've ever had, I say, when I can bear to stop eating. This inspires another cheer from the room, and Hen grins broadly and sets the platter of remaining muffins down on the table. They are instantly claimed. More coming in a few, he promises the room, winking at me as he disappears back into the kitchen. I'm struck by his confident, mature demeanor. Hen isn't just doing this job, he's owning it. Like a grown-up. Well? Wenda has appeared at my elbow, beaming with pride. I think for a moment, savoring the bite of muffin in my mouth. How did you turn him into an adult in the week I was stuck in clinical, I ask. That's almost more amazing than this muffin. Oh, I had very little to do with it, Wenda protests. Hen found something he was passionate about. I just got out of his way. It sounds like you had everything to do with it, I chide, but Wenda shakes her head. He was terrified when I asked him to take over so I could be with you in clinical, she says. But he was also inspired. Every day, he would talk to me about what he was going to make for you and Arden when you got back to the pod, and how important food is in healing the body and the spirit. It was as much you as it was me. He regards you both as heroes. He has the talent, but you provided the inspiration, and all I did was give him the keys to the pantry. 
I feel another blush coming on and shake my head. I'm no hero, I say around a mouthful of muffin. You are to them, Wanda says, gesturing at the rest of my podmates who are bustling through the common room, sharing coffee and food and preparing for the day's work assignments. You are to me. This admission startles me, and I'm about to disagree vehemently when I catch the expression on Wanda's face. It's not worshipful or aggrandizing in any way. She isn't gushing over me or being sentimental. She's being serious and matter-of-fact. This is the Wanda I know better than to argue with. Really, it would seem a bit ungracious, too. My train of thought is interrupted by Holly, who throws her arms around me and says into my ear, I'm so glad you're home. It didn't feel right without you. I return the hug, and she's off again, gathering holo tablets and personal items for her day at school and skipping toward the doorway where Bennett has just entered. He beams at Holly and asks her to wait, then crosses the common room to me. Not another heroic declaration, I murmur under my breath and feel Wenda's elbow dig into my side sharply. Fortunately, Bennett has a more practical purpose. I have a message for you, Faith, he says. The governor's been trying to reach you, but he says you're not on headset. He asked if I could let you know he needs your input and to please contact him. I think it's important. Oh, I say, of course. I'm not tapped in because Matcha threatened me if I was, but I'll get in touch with Graham right away. Thank you for delivering the message. You're welcome, Bennett says, his gaze straying back to Holly. I promised Holly I would walk over to education this morning, so it was no trouble. With that, the slender young man departs to join Holly in the doorway. Without missing a beat, Holly shifts her belongings so she can link her right arm through Bennett's bioequivalent left arm as they move out into the courtyard. I leave for a week and everything changes, I sigh, feigning consternation as well as I can with a smile on my face. Wenda makes an amused sound that shows she isn't fooled. <laughs> so the governor requires your counsel, she teases instead. I wonder if that's personal or professional. I couldn't tell you, I say. Things got us somewhat derailed after the accident. I saw him here last night, but he left before I even got a chance to speak to him. Well, we were only barely able to convince him to show up at all, Wenda explains. He appears to be under a great deal of pressure. I get the impression pod leadership is not what he wants to be doing, and he's been tapped to help coordinate this company visit as well. With you and Arden and Bennett all on medical leave and Polly injured, the warehousing team is down to him and two other people. And then there's the fact that this appears to have brought you and Arden closer. It's my turn to be unconvinced. Arden would not be a threat to anything Graham and I have between us, I say, although since we had that fight in clinical, I'm not sure what it is that we do have between us. Wenda scowls. You had a fight in clinical? That seems so unlike him. Well, that's what I thought as well. He's especially worried about the company visit. I'd almost characterize it as paranoid. He lectured me about how unwise it is to draw the company's attention. He lectured you about that. Wenda's eyes widen in astonishment. Well, to be fair, he doesn't know my history, but yes, he basically ripped into me the day I broke Polly's quarantine field, and it was mostly about how I shouldn't want to be under the company's lens. Wenda lets out a short, sharp laugh. <laughs> he has no idea. I guess what it comes down to is I don't know his full history either. Maybe his dealings with the company during his time on Bartizel were enough to feel this kind of response. They were fairly horrific, if what he's told me is true. Maybe he's had other interactions with them that I'm not aware of. Either way, it felt like he was angry, and it wasn't because of me. It, I was just a convenient dumping point. So call him. See what this is about. Maybe you can get some private time to work out what's really going on. That's exactly what I'm going to do, I say, as soon as I have another muffin. Back in my room with a small stash of muffins and a large mug of coffee that Hen put together just for me, I pick up my headset and gingerly place it onto my head. The general channel is alive with chatter and the life of Iona, proceeding with its day as if nothing was wrong, 
as if Iona's lead coordinator wasn't lying frozen in clinical with an uncertain future, as if an 18-year-old Bartizellian now had one biological arm and one almost biological arm that he will be learning how to use for months. I tap out of the general channel and into Graham's. Taking a deep breath, I hail him, but there's no response. Chapter 12 I try to hail Graham a few more times without reaching anyone, so I move back to the general channel and hail him there. I do get several responses, but from citizens of Iona celebrating my release from clinical and my apparently universally admired brave deeds. I have to hear the word hero repeated a couple of more times before a voice I recognize comes through on the channel. Hello! Tomas's powerful tone echoes in my ears in a way that's eerily reminiscent of Polly. I'm glad you recovered from your welcome home party. I can't help but laugh. Yes, I say, although I'm as sore as if I'd climbed all of Iona's mountains in one day. Dancing is good exercise, he says nonsensically. Graham's not available now, but he wanted to know if you could meet him at intake in an hour. He says he'll be in the conference room. Intake? That sounds like work. Macha's not going to readmit me, is she? Tomas chuckles. I can't speak for Macha. You'll just have to hope for the best. All right, then. I'll look for Graham there. Thanks for relaying the message. The general channel goes quiet, and I log off. I'm aching to be productive, but between my medical leave restrictions and the fact Wenda did a brilliant job managing the pod while I was out, nothing here really needs my attention. I grab my jacket and head over to intake. So many Ionians want to stop me and shake my hand that the 15-minute walk takes me closer to 45, but I still arrive before Graham. When I step into intake, the lobby is dark and quiet and the conference room is vacant. I take a seat at the table, looking out at the plaza. I can see clinical in the distance, and out beyond it, a couple of skiffs landing on our pad. If this were a normal day, that's where I'd be, guiding ships in and gathering parts for my project and laughing at Polly's unfunny jokes. If this were just a normal day. I'm so lost in my thoughts I don't hear Graham come into the room. I jump when he places his hand on my shoulder. You look worried, he says. I was thinking about Polly, I say. Graham looks grim and sighs, taking the seat next to me. I don't know how Polly did all this, he says, gesturing at the whole of Iona. I'm barely keeping up. His gaze drifts toward the window, and he seems lost in Iona's blowing sands. The calm collected mask drops, and I see another Graham, one who is haggard and tired and anxious. So you wanted my input about something? I prod. Ah, oh, right, yes. He rubs his eyes as if trying to dispel a vision. You know we have a visitor from the company coming soon. You worked for the company, you were born on a company planet, and you understand their protocol well, or so Wenda tells me. Yes, that's true, I say, making a conscious effort to sound relaxed. What's up? Understanding their protocol might be the understatement of the century, but I let him continue. We originally thought a team of investigators was coming from Homeworld, and I was asked to coordinate their visit. But plans have apparently changed. Instead, the company's operations security chief is coming, and she wants to oversee an Ionian team that will do the actual investigation. I wince. That probably won't go over very well, I say. Graham continues to stare out at Iona's horizon, but his expression registers his agreement. This is exactly what he's been thinking as well. A company officer will not have the first idea how to manage and direct residents of an independent planet and may not even understand our basic skill-sharing, team-based system of work assignments. And Ionians will balk under the potentially rigid expectations and processes of the company, which could all reflect poorly on Iona and lead to less company business for us. It's a potential disaster in the making. Graham turns to me, his expression equal parts hope and exhaustion. 
I was hoping you might agree to put together the team and serve as something of a go-between so the Ionians don't freak out the OS chief and the OS chief doesn't scare the hell out of the Ionians and what needs to get done gets done. His air is one of entreaty. It's clearly important to him that I agree to take over this task. I'm a little surprised. This is a high-level assignment, and while I'm well-known on Iona as multi-talented and easy to work with, the most responsibility I fielded here is pod leader. I have, for the last eight years, made a concentrated effort not to stand out. Do you think it's appropriate for me to take on such a high-profile assignment? I ask. It's outside what I normally do here. I know what you're capable of, he says simply, looking down at the marble tabletop and tracing its veining with a fingertip. You have the right blend of experience, you know almost everyone here, and they all think highly of you. People will work with you and for you. And you know how to talk to company higher-ups and how to deal with process protocol. This won't be a stretch for you. He's right, and it makes perfect sense, but that doesn't silence the alarm going off in my head, screaming too much visibility. My goal in coming to Iona was to never be at the behest of the company again and to become dead to them. If I take this role, my precious anonymity, if it ever really existed, will be shattered. But it also means I'll have the chance to make sure this investigation goes well and that the results are unaltered and unfiltered by the company itself. That could, in the long run, serve to protect Iona and the independence I've come to value so much. It might be worth it just for that. I have a few questions, I say. You know I'm still on medical leave. Graham manages to laugh. <laughs> After hearing your exchange with Matcha this morning, that's a fact I'm unlikely to forget, he says. The security chief isn't arriving until the end of next week, and I spoke to Matcha earlier and assured you wouldn't have to lift any bodies or attempt to fly any hover gurneys as part of this assignment. I smile now, too, remembering his own heroics, getting not just Polly but also me, Arden, and himself out of the warehouse before it exploded. I would get to assemble my own team? No restrictions on that? I ask. None, he says, and no restrictions on how you manage the process or interface with the Ionians or the company. That's completely up to you. I just ask you to keep me informed. I can do that, I say, and extend my hand in agreement. Yes, I'll do it. He lets out a relieved sigh and extends his hand in return. We shake on this plan, and he relaxes slightly. That's an enormous load off my mind, he says. He releases my hand and rubs his red-rimmed eyes again. Out of nowhere, he adds... I wish the pod had made Fanny the leader. She's been here longer than anyone. She knows the entire population. She's easy to get along with. I don't know why they didn't. Because no one takes Fanny seriously, least of all Fanny herself, I say. I'm confident Fanny would never have accepted the pod leadership position under any circumstances anyway. That would basically be like admitting Polly was never coming back by stepping into his shoes. Look, if you need help with pod systems, let me know. I have some good ones that work well without much oversight. Graham's lips curved momentarily into a tender expression. I'm sorry I was so terrible to you that day in clinical, he says. The warehouse accident affected me more than I expected, and I haven't found my way back to myself. And I'm sorry we aren't seeing much of each other these days. It just seems like it's never a good time. I'm exceptionally crabby company, anyway. It's all right, I say. We walk out of the conference room and bid each other goodbye in the lobby. Graham heads down the hall to Polly's office to deal with more company requests, while I walk back to my pod, wondering where my initial enthusiasm for Graham has gone, and whether it will come back with time. As soon as I get back to the pod, I get to work on establishing my team. I start by making lists of qualifications and matching them with names. But the more I work, the more confused I become. It's a more difficult challenge than I'd anticipated. What qualifications are the right ones? Do we need investigators? Interviewers? Detectives? Scientists? Witnesses? Who? 
In the end, I decide I want to work with people I trust. I take Graham and his word that this is all mine to construct. Fine, then. The last iteration of my list takes shape, and I'm reviewing it with a sense of satisfaction when I hear Wenda bustling about in our common room. I grab her and plead my case. She's skeptical at first. Shouldn't this be, I don't know, scientists or safety experts or something? She asks, twisting her lips into a puzzled quirk. Well, I'm not a scientist or a safety expert, I counter. I know that might make more sense initially, but I keep thinking about what you said the other day about Iona becoming a place people were actually from, I explain. The way we handle this and the way we present ourselves to the company could have a monumental role in how they see Iona. That's why I want you and your social scientist perspective on board. Wenda looks thoughtful. I'm still not sure I understand where you're going with this, but I'll be glad to help, she says. It certainly can't hurt. I look as encouraging as possible, although no one knows better than I do how interactions with the company certainly can hurt, deeply and for a long time. Good, I say, hugging her thankfully. You're on the team. The others I hope to recruit I can speak with tomorrow, but one I want to talk to tonight, and he might be a tough sell. I have an ace up my sleeve, however. I spend a few minutes digging through the small treasure box on my desk, find what I need, and tuck it into my pocket. I pass through our kitchen and stash some of Hen's breakfast muffins, fresh made and ready for tomorrow, into my pack, and on a whim add a thermos of coffee. Then I grab my jacket and head out through the sandy courtyard, walking briskly toward the square. This conversation will have to happen in person and include a lot of bribes. When I walk into Clinical's lobby, I first ring for the attendant to ask if what I have in mind is allowed. I'm not one to ask for permission generally, but I'm determined not to rile up matcha or make any more mistakes out of impulsiveness. At first, I'm not sure if I should be pleased or concerned when Pepper comes around the corner to respond to the chime, but she greets me with a smile and hears my request, and after a quick check of her clinical notes, she gives me a thumbs up. You should probably escort me to the room, I say. I don't want anybody thinking I'm trying to go somewhere I'm not supposed to be. She rolls her eyes at me at first, but she understands, and together we head to the stairs, where we progress without incident to the third floor. Her headset buzzes and she listens, then murmurs into her mic. Matcha says she trusts you to take it from here, she reports as we turn onto the hallway, not too far from the room I left so happily only yesterday. He's not scheduled for anything today other than rest and a recheck, so you won't be interrupting anything. Thanks, I say, and Pepper waves goodbye as she bounces down the stairs. I stand for a moment, anxious in the unnatural quiet of this place. Even a single footstep sounds intrusively loud and discordant here, and I find myself tiptoeing toward Arden's room. When I'm a few feet away from the door, however, I can hear voices, Arden's and one other. I stop in my tracks. My first concern is that Pepper was wrong and I'm about to piss Matcha off again by interrupting and get readmitted, but only a few moments later I understand the voice I hear doesn't belong to Matcha or anyone on the clinical staff. In fact, there's no one else physically present in Arden's room. Instead, I'm hearing Arden in a contentious discussion with someone on a hola tablet. You're not seeing the full picture, he's saying tersely. Remember, I have a personal relationship. You had a personal relationship, a female voice interrupts. The speaker is cold, stern, and clearly not used to having her point of view challenged in any way. You have no real insight here. We know all people are potentially susceptible to corruption by outside forces intent on the destruction of... I have extensive observation that supports my line of reasoning. Don't tell me I don't have any real insight, Arden snaps. My reports are on file. It would be to your benefit if you read the damn things, and don't contact me again until you have something of use to say that's not based on raw, unfounded paranoia and speculation. Do keep in mind your chain of command. I can remind you if necessary. Good day. This exchange is followed a few seconds later by the sound of a holotablet smashing into the tile floor. 
I'm so startled that I let out an involuntary yelp. Although Arden might have been preoccupied enough not to hear me, I decide to make myself apparent and pretend I wasn't just eavesdropping at his door. I hurry into his room with as much concern as I can paste over the shocked expression on my face. Arden is standing by the window, staring out with a fierce scowl. The holotablet's remains are scattered at his feet. Are you okay? What happened? I heard a crash, I say loudly. He spins toward me, initially looking alarmed, but his face softens as he takes me in. Faith, he says warmly, and opens his arms as he moves a few steps in my direction. I let him pull me into a hug. I can feel him shaking slightly. The anger may have left his expression, but he's still holding it in his body. Are you all right? I repeat. What happened to your holotablet? He lets out a sigh, and the tremors begin to subside. I broke it, he says simply. I'm okay. Just frustrated. Frustrated with what? With being stuck in here, primarily. That I can certainly relate to, although it doesn't explain the conversation I just overheard. He doesn't elaborate, though. Instead, he hugs me a little tighter, and I let him, patting him in what I hope is a comforting manner. I can't even begin to think of how to ask him about what I overheard, and it's evident he's not going to volunteer any information, at least not yet. Hey, I brought you food, I say, extricating myself from his hug and setting my pack down on the bed. Food? Real food? He asks. His posture begins to relax, and he shoots me a rakish smile. Yes, real food. Breakfast for dinner. Wonderful muffins made by hen and fresh coffee. I pull the items out of my pack and arrange them in the center of the bed and offer Arden the thermos. We then climb onto opposite ends of the bed and sit facing one another with our legs tucked under us and the food between us like kids at a sleepover. These are amazing, Arden says around a mouthful of muffin. Hen made these? Yep, he's taken over his pod chef. It's well deserved. I can't wait to get back. I'm so tired of this place. When are you supposed to get out? Matcha wants another week, although I'm lobbying for sooner. There was some feedback in my respiratory test she didn't like the look of. Well, that doesn't sound good. Maybe you should listen to her. Breathing is kind of important. But Matcha isn't worried. She'll tell you that herself. She just wants to make sure everything is solidly normal before I'm discharged, given the uh, impact of whatever Polly was exposed to. She's just being extremely conservative. Destroy some more equipment. They'll let you out faster. Arden looks ruefully at the pile of parts that used to be the holotablet. She's not going to be happy about that, he mutters. It was just an accident. An accident? I wasn't even in the room, and I can tell that you threw it at the wall. I threw it at the wall by accident. Right. You were intending to throw it at the window? Or at the drone, maybe? Arden looks defeated. All right, he says. I threw it at the wall on purpose. I was, I was worked up. I would be better able to control my emotions if I wasn't stuck in here. I raise an eyebrow at him. Can I ask why you were so emotional you threw your holotablet at the wall? Arden takes an especially large bite of muffin and chews thoughtfully for many more moments than he actually needs to. No, he finally says, wiping crumbs from his lips with his fingertips. You'll hear about it soon enough. I throw up my hands. More secrets, I say. Not secrets, just... A few things I need to be able to think about how to explain. I promise. This feels like familiar territory and a place I don't want to find myself in again. I decide to let it drop, but just for now, I tell myself. Eat, I say instead, gesturing at the remaining scraps of muffin. I have to go soon, and I'm taking anything left with me. Arden looks at me for what seems like a long time, studying my face, the wheels in his head obviously turning. He eventually reaches across the bed and takes my hand. Thank you, he says. 
For breakfast, I quip, chewing my own mouthful of muffin. He squeezes my hand gently. For everything. Don't thank me just yet, I warn. There's more to this than I've let on. Arden's expression hovers somewhere between excitement, disbelief, and horror once I tell him what I have in mind. Are you kidding me, he says. I mean, didn't we try something like this once before? It didn't go well. It went well enough. We're both here, I say. He still appears unconvinced. Look, I have to put together a team. There's no way around that. And given my, uh, experience, I've decided that while experts are useful, what I want is to have a team made up of people I trust. Explicitly. Do you understand why? Gods, yes, I definitely understand why. And I think that's the right way to go. Experts can be brought in as needed, but the core team has to be people who have your back at all times. So will you do it? I'm leaning against the wall near the door, watching him. I've been trying to convince him for almost 20 minutes. Just as I expected, he's putting up a protest. He takes a slow turn around the room, winding up at the window, looking out on the Ionian dusk. You trust me, he says so quietly I almost don't hear him at first. It's strange even to me, I admit, but I do. He turns to me, his face dark. You thought I left you on Homeworld to die. But you didn't, did you? I reach into my pocket and pull out my secret weapon, a small folded square of paper, once green but now gray with age. I approach him, extend my hand, and drop it into his palm. You never left me at all. A look of wonder crosses his features as he takes the paper from me and gently unfolds it. The tiny black dots still ripple and tremble across his handwriting at the paper center. I can't believe you kept this all this time, he murmurs, fingering the paper with care as though it's the most precious thing he's ever held. I can't either, I laugh, breaking the somber mood. I was so miserable when I left Homeworld. Sirquise gave me this and told me not to open it until we were out of orbit. I opened it on the transport, and at first I thought it was some hallucination caused by the sleepers, but I packed it away and looked at it again once I was settled on Iona. I wasn't sure until now, but I always wondered if this meant you were out there somewhere thinking of me. That's why I could never quite let go. Gently, Arden refolds the paper, securing the seeds inside it once again. He hands it back to me. I didn't know if you'd even seen this, he says. Sirquise said you had it, but he couldn't know if you had looked at it or what your reaction might have been. I hoped, of course, but... His voice trails off, and he looks at me intently. I turn the square over a few times, then out of habit kiss it, before I put it back into my pocket. This kept us connected for eight years, I say, as we walk back to the bed and perch on the edge of it. But it's time for you to tell me what happened, especially if we're going to be taking on the company again. Arden runs a hand through his thick golden hair. He looks tired, but there's a hint of a smile on his face. Do you want to ask questions, or should I just talk, he asks. This is another thing the Arden of our youth would never have done. Tell me what you did, I respond. Tell me how you ended the waning, and how you saved my life. Arden laughs hollowly, looking down at his feet. Well, we'd figured out where it was coming from, he says, so I did the thing you told me not to do. The aerators? Yep. How? I literally walked into environmental management and destroyed the control panel and everything else I could, took a sledgehammer to it and crushed it to bits. I had meant to be subtle about it, but you were so sick, and I thought... His voice breaks and he pauses momentarily. Well, anyway, I didn't care about being subtle anymore by that point. I'm shocked. No one tried to stop you, I ask. The one thing we had been certain of was that we were being watched and that 
everything, even remotely connecting the waning to the company itself, was bound to be protected by the highest security. The aerator units, which produced the sweet-smelling chemical-rich air of home world, would have been at the very core of that evidence. No, not a soul. I assumed it was all on camera somewhere, and the hammer would come down on me later, so I went back to the pod to wait. I, I wanted to be with you in case... Well, I, I wanted to be with you. I was hoping you'd get better once the air cleared. I did, I say, gesturing grandly at myself. He grimaces, and I at last understand the depth of his concern. It wasn't instantaneous, he says. You still had a long road, but once you turned the corner, I knew you were going to be all right. That's all I needed to see. I remember you giving me the green slop, I say. Why do that if you'd eliminated the threat by destroying the aerators? Well, that stuff did have some nice sedation and pain management properties, he said. I made some adjustments so they would be amplified. I figured it would be better if you slept through everything. If you were asleep, you logically couldn't have been involved. I momentarily flash back to the day I woke up after my battle with the waning, initially shocked and elated to find I had survived, then horrified and heartbroken when I realized Arden and all evidence of Arden was gone. Did they come for you? I ask. This question has kept me raw for the last eight years, wondering, never knowing. I am holding my breath as he fidgets with the edge of his shirt, focusing on the movement of his own hands. They did, he confirms, not lifting his gaze, but not in the way you're expecting. They offered me a job. A job, I barked out, utterly dumbfounded. A job? What kind of job? An important job, he says. Something crucial that I'm still not at liberty to discuss. But more importantly, there were terms associated with this job. Terms specific to the security of people I loved and wanted to see left unhindered by certain company pursuits. They understood that would be a particular interest of mine. So I had my terms, and they had theirs, and in the end, we reached an agreement. One of your terms was that they would leave me alone? Emphatically, yes. And one of their terms was you disappearing from Homeworld and having no further contact with me? Again, yes. And without telling anyone, although I took advantage of the fact that they did not exclude Sirquise by name. Sirquise knew? My own brain chides me even as I speak. Of course Sirquise knew. You saw that in him many times. You knew he was hiding something. He knew he was afraid. He knew some things, Arden confirmed. I couldn't tell him everything for his own protection, but he knew enough to keep you safe, and he had a way to try to get word to me if necessary, although that was by no means foolproof. My brain is reeling. One part of me is wallowing, misery, wailing how many people lied to me and just kept on lying. Another part is insisting I calm down, focus, and listen. Oddly, I hear Graham's voice sputter, this isn't about you. I look into Arden's face, twisted and strained with almost impossible to bear emotion, and I understand this really truly is not about me. All these years, I've held my misery close like a precious parcel, but the reality is that I was making that choice, and my freedom to make it came at a price that Arden paid. I know now he spent eight years carrying guilt over his decision, anguish over the destruction of our relationship, pain at his helplessness to reconnect or intercede if something went wrong, and the constant fear that for all the agreements and terms and understandings, the company would one day simply choose not to honor their part of the bargain, and there would be nothing that he could do. It wasn't what I expected or what I wanted, he says, but if the only way I could ensure your safety was by leaving, I had no doubt about what I was going to do. There are still so many unanswered questions, but the time for recrimination seems to have finally passed belonging to another life. When I look at him now, I am grateful, I am relieved, 
I am suspicious, I am annoyed, I am giddy. But despite the parade of conflicting emotions marching through me, all I can think is how right it is that we are here in this odd conundrum together. I throw my arms around Arden and hold him as tight as I possibly can, and he responds in kind. Although it seems almost ridiculously inadequate, the only thing I can manage to say is, I missed you. He presses his cheek into my hair and whispers, Me too. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Check back next week for a new episode. Follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. 